<coughs> Continuing with chapter 19, Sotapanna, the spiritual turning point, uh, no, section 4. Even when passing away, a Sotapanna brings blessings. <coughs> Such people are assured of a pleasant rebirth and will be praised by those devas who are of similar faith and virtue. And then this next uh, passage comes once more from the Sotapati Sangyuta, the Connected Discourses about Stream Entry. Bhikkhus, when a noble disciple possesses four things, the devas are elated and speak of his similarity to themselves. What for? Here Bhikkhus, a noble disciple, possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha, thus, the Blessed One is teacher of devas and humans, the Enlightened One, the Blessed One. To those devatas who passed away here in the human world and were reborn there in the heavenly world, possessing confirmed confidence in the Buddha, the thought occurs, as the noble disciple possesses the same, the same confirmed confidence in the Buddha that we possessed when we passed away there and were reborn here, he will come into the presence of the devas. Again, because the noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Dhamma and in the Sangha, he possesses the virtues dear to the noble ones, unbroken, conducive to concentration. To those devas who passed away here, in the human world, and were reborn there, in the heavenly world, possessing the virtues dear to the noble ones, the thought occurs, as the noble disciple possesses the same kind of virtues dear to the noble ones that we possessed when we passed away there, and were reborn here, he will come into the presence of the devas. When Bhikkhu's a noble disciple possesses these four things, the devas are elated and speak of his similarity to themselves. So that's a sense of, oh, there's another one coming. The kind of uh, happiness to be receiving someone of a kindred spirit, someone of a similar nature and similar faith and, um, and understanding similar values. So the devas are you know, elated at that, uh, that prospect of uh, one who is uh, going to join their... Um, their, their group, their community. The fruits arising from stream entry apply both to this lifetime and to the life to come, benefiting oneself and others. In this next short sutta, the Buddha points to six blessings of the Sotapanna. What he says is terse, meaning brief and short and to the point, but has a wide-ranging meaning or implication. As Bhikkhu Bodhi states in his footnote to this passage, Unable to fall back, quote-unquote, that is, one will not fall into the lower realms. Has set a limit to suffering, quote-unquote, means the number of future existences is a maximum of seven. And uncommon knowledge, quote-unquote, is the supramundane knowledge of Nibbāna, which is not shared by the common worldly. The understanding of causes and of things arisen by causes are reckoned as two distinct blessings. So then this passage is from the Book of the Sixes. And it says simply, There are, O monks, these six blessings in realizing the fruit of stream entry. One is firm in the good Dhamma. One is unable to fall back. One has set a limit to suffering. One is endowed with uncommon knowledge. One has clearly understood causes and the phenomena arisen by causes. So that's the whole of the sutta apparently it's just very brief so those those uh, those particular things so one is firm in the good dhamma um so that there's a, a clear uh, attunement and uh, understanding and uh, realization of dhamma uh, one is unable to fall back meaning that uh, an enlightenment is guaranteed that uh, a stream enter cannot uh, be reborn in any of the lower realms the animal world or the realm of ghosts or the hell realms one has set a limit to suffering, meaning no more than seven lifetimes of any kind. Uh, one is endowed with uncommon knowledge, and as uh, uh, the footnote says, that means the, the uh, understanding or the knowledge of Nibbāna. And then one has clearly understood causes and phenomena arisen by causes. So that is uh, also speaking about the, the insight into causality and the at sort of the, the core of the dependent origination because if, if you remember there's a few uh, passages that say one who understands the Dhamma understands dependent origination one who understands dependent origination understands the Dhamma so that and at the very core of dependent origination you have that simple relationship of 
of uh, causality in the Pachayata. Because of this, there is that. When this arises, that arises. When uh, because w- when there is not this, then there is not that. When this ceases, that ceases. That's the formula for idapachayata or uh, causality. Then uh, the next passage comes from uh, the <coughs> the connected discourses about the breakthrough. So. Uh, if you remember, uh, I mentioned that you have this whole this section, section 13 of the Sangeeta Nikaya is called the Breakthrough, the Connected Discourses about the Breakthrough, and that's replicated, those ten suttas are replicated in uh, um, pretty much uh, exactly the same wording later on. So uh, we had the fingernail uh, sutta, that was the, that's the first one of the Connected Discourses about the Breakthrough, um, and that was... Um, for, uh, from the uh, Satcha Sangyuta. So section, 50, uh, so section 13 of the Connected Discourses is repeated in uh, almost in, uh, verbatim, almost exactly the same words in the uh, Connected Discourses about the Truths, the Satcha Sangyuta. And so that uh, the, uh, the, the whole collection of ten appears in that later um, uh, section almost uh, in exactly the same words. So this is uh, one of the ones from the um, connected discourses about the breakthrough and this is about the Himalayas using the imagery of the Himalayan mountains. So this is uh, from section 13 of the uh, Sangyuta. At Savati, because suppose that the Himalayas, the king of mountains, would be destroyed and eliminated except for seven grains of gravel, the size of mustard seeds. What do you think, Because Which is more, the portion of the Himalayas, the king of mountains that has been destroyed and eliminated, or the seven grains of gravel, the size of mustard seeds that remain? Venerable Sir, the portion of the Himalayas, the king of mountains that has been destroyed and, el- and eliminated is more. The seven grains of gravel, the size of mustard seeds that remain are trifling. They do not amount to a hundredth part or a, a thousandth part or a hundred thousandth part of the portion of the Himalayas, the king of mountains that has been destroyed and eliminated. So too, bhikkhus, for a noble disciple, a person accomplished in view, who has made the breakthrough, the suffering that has been destroyed and eliminated is more, while that which remains is trifling. The latter does not amount to a hundredth part or a thousandth part or a hundred thousandth part of the former mass of suffering that has been destroyed and eliminated, as there is a maximum of seven more lives. Of such great benefit, bhikkhus, is the breakthrough to the Dhamma. Of such great benefit is it to obtain the vision of the Dhamma. And then the next short passage is from the Connected Discourses about uh, stream entry. Bhikkhus, those for whom you have compassion and who think you should be heeded, whether friends or colleagues, relatives or kinsmen, these you should exhort, settle and establish in the four factors of stream entry. So that, uh, uh, just like the, the suit on the fingernail, that uh, is a very, very similar spirit, that uh, if the, the whole of the Himalayas had been worn away and had disappeared, um, compared to seven little um, pieces of, of gravel the size of mustard seeds, that's compared to the amount of suffering you can expect to experience if you haven't made the breakthrough, to the amount of suffering you can expect to experience if you have. So he, he has this, this kind of a no comparison between those two. And then this next, uh, that, that uh, subsequent passage is, uh, is uh, quite um, touching, really, or, or sort of uh, uh, thoughtful in terms of saying, if you have compassion for people, if you really care about people, what you'll do is you would encourage them to establish the, the four factors of stream entry. So that's sapurisa um, sangseva, drawing close to superior people. Uh, to uh, uh, savana, to listening to the true Dhamma, Yoni uh, Manasikara, to uh, establish the heart in wise reflection, and Dhammanu Dhamma Patipada, to, um, to practice the Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma. You know, and uh, the other day I was looking at, I don't have it with me here, but there's a, a um, <coughs> when the, the Buddha is talking about the origins of. Um, uh, talking about ignorance, and he says, "What's the cause for for ignorance?" Um, that uh, actually, I do have it here. Completely. So, what, uh, when he um, 
because in dependent origination, usually the, the cycle is, is sort of regarded as, as beginning at avijja. And there's a few places where he talks about where does avijja come from? What is, what is ignorance caused by? And uh, one of the key places where he talks about that is in the discourse on right views, Samadhiti Sutta, the Sutta number nine in the middle length discourses. Uh, but then there's this, uh, another passage which is kind of interesting in the um, Book of the Tens in the Anguttara Nikaya. And uh, he says, <clears throat> what, are, what are the contributing causes to Avijja? What's, what's the source? What's the, um, what's the nutriment? What's the food that, that it feeds ignorance? And then he says, the five hindrances. Uh, so that's sense desire, ill will, restlessness, dullness, and doubt. They're, the, they're what feed Avijja. And then he says, and what are the, what's the nutriment? What's the, what feeds the five hindrances, and then uh, what's you know what supports the five hindrances? And he says the three kinds of misconduct: so misconduct in speech, in action, and in and in mind. He says, but what feeds? What's the nutriment for the the three different kinds of misconduct? And he says, well, non-restraint of the senses, so not uh, not being careful about what you listen to, what you look at, what you uh, what you eat, what you uh, uh, what you smell, and so forth. So that when the, the senses are unrestrained, so the sense restraint is called indriya sangvara. Um, so when the, the senses are unrestrained, which means you kind of you look at what you like, you listen to what you like, you taste what you like, and just following sense desire through a uh, lack of restraint. Then he says, so what uh, what feeds? What's the support or what's the nutriment for lack of uh, of sense restraint? And he says, lack of mindfulness and clear comprehension. Lack of sati sampajanya. So when there isn't mindfulness and clear comprehension or an intuitive wisdom, as Lung would put it, that's what feeds lack of restraint. And what feeds the lack of, of mindfulness and clear comprehension is careless attention. Ayoni so manasikara. So like um, not being attentive to what you, uh, what you put your mind on. Um, basically absorbing your mind into stupid things. You know. So like sitting in a temple... Um, feeding a gripe about you know, everything that's wrong with Ajahn Sundra or Ajahn Amaro or, yeah, or Rookie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that Rookie woman, I can't stand her. You know. Or you know, or or the other end of the scale, falling in love with someone. Oh, that person's so wonderful, you know, so incredible, so marvelous. If I could only be with that person, I'd be happy forever. So this, that would be a yoni so manasikara, careless attention that you just sort of feeding. The, um, putting the attention on um, uh, patterns of, of thought and emotion that they're just uh, are going to cause trouble and confusion. Then he says, uh, so what is the cause? What's the, the nutriment, the support for uh, careless attention? He says, lack of faith, not having, not having sada or not having confidence, lack of faith uh, feeds careless attention. And then he says, and so what feeds lack of faith? So not having faith, not a sense of trusting the Dhamma or, um, or tr- you know, trusting the qualities of, of wholesomeness and, and uh, skillfulness and so on. He says, not hearing the good Dhamma is the nutriment for lack of faith. So if you don't hear the teachings, if you don't have um, good advice, or you don't have a resource to, to help you understand, then that's then um, that is a cause for a lack of faith. And then it's, the whole thing starts off with, and what's the cause, what's the nutriment for not hearing the good Dhamma? Uh, it's not associating with good people. So your spiritual friends lie at the very root. But, and then, of course, being the Buddha is extremely thorough. Then he says, but if you do have, associate with good people, if you do have good spiritual friends, that... It's a nutriment for hearing the Dhamma. That when you hear the good Dhamma, then that's a nutriment for faith. When you hear faith, then that's a nutriment for the um, for careful attention. When you, when there's careful attention, that's a nutriment for mindfulness and clear comprehension. With mindfulness and clear comprehension, that's a nutriment, a support for the uh, restraint of the senses, which then uh, helps the mind not to get caught into the three kinds of misconduct, which then reduces the nutriment for the five hindrances, which then takes away the nutriment for ignorance. Bob's your uncle, as they say. <laughs> so that wonderful little sutta is called, is it uh, Book of the Tens, sutta number 61.
Sutta number 61. And then he has this, this image that, um, of the rain falling on the mountains. He says, just as the, the rain falls onto the mountains and, and forms into little puddles and then into, into pools and into streams, and the little streams feed the bigger streams, and the bigger streams feed the lakes, and the lakes feed the, 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 the rivers, and, uh, and then the rivers feed the, the great ocean. And it says, so the, you know, the great ocean is filled up with, with um, unskillfulness. <laughs> And that's what feeds the ocean, is all that, the, the rain falling on the mountain. And, and but similarly, you know, um, the, in the, with exactly the same image, so it's, you know, when, when it's skillfulness, uh, it's like the rain falling on the mountains and forming into streams and pools and the, the rivers filling up the ocean of, of goodness. So that's a really, uh, <coughs> a really helpful uh, collection of, of, uh, of teachings. So when people say, well, where does ignorance come from? But it also it starts off by saying there is no first cause discernible for ignorance. Like, like uh, the Buddha was always saying, there's no point where you can say before this there was no avijja and then after this point avijja began. So you, there's no first beginning point is discernible. But he said, but, it's saying, but avijja is not without its causes. So that it, that you can't say... Like uh, there was a big, you know, there was a big bang, and suddenly it all you know, Avijja uh, appeared. But, but uh, still, Avijja has its causes. That's in the same sutta. Yes, it's the very, f- it's the first sentence of that sutta. Thank you. So, Book of the Tens, number sixty-one. <laughs> Put that on your list. <laughs> and the other one was Pachamā nine. Nine. That's uh, it's, sec- it's paragraph sixty-six. Right at the end of, of uh, quick, where's that pencil? <laughs> it's uh, right at the end of the Samaditi Sutta. Sutta number nine, paragraph 66 of the Majjhima. Okay, so let's continue. <clears throat> Beyond the happiness that stream entry brings in this life, and through death on into the next is the happiness in knowing that one's ultimate total liberation is assured. It's good to know that your retirement plan is guaranteed. Your uh, insurance company is not going to go belly up. This is a guaranteed protection. And then this is where, uh, again, he has this image of the the rain falling on the, the mountains. And this comes from the, uh, the connected discourses of, uh, about stream entry. Because just as when rain pours down in thick, thick droplets on a mountaintop, the water flows down along the slope and fills the clefts, gullies and creeks. These being filled up, fill up the pools. These being filled up, uh, fill up the lakes. These being filled, fill up the streams. These being filled, fill up the rivers. And these being filled, fill up the great ocean. So too. For a noble disciple, these things, confirmed confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, and the virtues dear to the noble ones, flow onwards, and, having gone beyond, they lead to the destruction of the taints. So it's exactly the same imagery of the rain falling on the mountains. Sotapanna gets safely to the other shore, quote-unquote, an image the Buddha frequently used to refer to Nibbāna. In the following sutta, the Buddha compares himself and his teaching to a skillful cowherd who is able to take his herd of cows across the Ganges in flood. The bulls, the strong cows, the heifers and the young oxen are compared to arahants, non-returners and once-returners respectively. They are able to get across safely. Although the sotapanas may not be as strong as the others, they too are able to reach the safety of the further shore. And this is from uh, sutta number 34 in the Majjhima. Just as the calves and the feeble cattle breasted the stream of the Ganges and got safely across to the further shore, so too those bhikkhus who, with the, with the destruction of three fetters, are stream enterers, no longer subject to perdition. That means falling down on difficult circumstances. Bound for deliverance, headed for enlightenment. By breasting Mara's stream, they too will get safely across to the further shore. Just as that tender calf just born... Being urged on by its mother's lowing, also breasted the stream of the Ganges and got safely across to the further shore. So too, those bhikkhus who are Dhamma followers and faith followers, by breasting Mara's stream, they too will get safely across to the further shore. 
Because I am skilled in this world and in the other world, skilled in Mara's realm and what is outside Mara's realm, skilled in the realm of death and what is outside the realm of death. It will lead to the welfare and happiness for a long time of those who think they should listen to me and place faith in me. That is what the Blessed One said. When the Sublime One had said that, the teacher said further, Both this world and the world beyond are well described by the one who knows. And what is still in Mara's reach and what is out of reach of death? Knowing directly all the world, the enlightened one who understands, opened the door to the deathless state by which Nibbana may be safely reached. For Mara's stream is breasted now, its current blocked, its reeds removed. Rejoice then, bhikkhus, mightily, and set your hearts where safety lies. So those, uh, as you remember, Dhamma followers and faith followers, the um, Dhammanusari and Sadhanusari there, um, people on the way to stream entry that haven't quite arrived there yet, but the Buddha says they too will make it across the the uh, dangerous uh, dangerous flood. Because um, for the for the Dhamma follow and faithful, I've uh, just read in the in the Sanjuta Nikaya, yeah, that, that the Buddha said they are incapable of passing away before mm -hmm. entering the stream, mm -hmm. and it is said that they are um, so the faithful follower and the Dhamma follower that they have a um, belief, or the faithful has um, conviction and belief in Nietzsche. This was the, say, the only only condition. Um, so I wonder, you know, it sounds quite attainable. How, <laughs> <laughs> how is, is um, faith and conviction meant in that? Does it have a deeper, deeper meaning? Well, the, uh, I don't know if you were here for the reading the other day, a few, a few days ago, but it's it's rather like the, the two styles of, or two approaches to practice. So one is a wisdom approach and the other is a faith approach. Mm -hmm. in, in like in the spiritual factors, you have, you have panya at one end of the, of, the, of the spectrum and you have sadha at the other end. So the panya is the people who have more of a disposition towards a critical faculty um, and that, that they're, so that their approach towards uh, uh, liberation is through wisdom. And then the sadha, the, 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 um, the faith end of the spectrum, is more the sense of trusting, the, uh, having confidence in the, in the teacher or in tr confidence in the path. So it's not so analytical, but more based on the sense of, um, uh, say, uh, a readiness to step into the unknown without, without uh, having a conceptual understanding. So that those two, the... Um, a dhamma follower and a faith follower they're, they're kind of uh, they're sort of representing two different personality types so the, the faith type and the, the, the analytical type so if you, and they, all, they say that if you've got too much wisdom and not enough faith then you end up just thinking a lot and the mind gets caught into doubt and conceptualizing but if you've got too much faith and not enough wisdom, then you become uh, someone who's credulous or believes too easily or doesn't, uh, doesn't examine, doesn't analyze. So that, that faith and wisdom need to be balanced with each other. But people tend to have a, a particular um, character type. And so that um, certain teachings or certain practices appeal to, to some people more than others. So that's, that's I guess, something deeper than just the... Uh conceptual belief, like, oh, okay, that's truly right, because logically this works or that, yeah. probably on a deeper level, I guess. Yeah, it's a, it's a confidence. Um, so sadha is, is a, okay, um, it's not, a, uh, faith is not so much a belief, it's not, a belief is like filling up the unknown with something that you hope to be true. Where faith is, uh, there's, uh, it's like a readiness to step into the unknown even if you don't know what's there. So faith is a liberating quality where belief is, a, is more of a neurotic quality. Like you're trying to fill up the unknown with what you think is true. Like you, you grasp an opinion or a belief or a hope to, to make that unknown go away or to be filled up. So sadha is a, a, a kind of a readiness to, like a courage really, like a sort of a bravery to step forward into the unknown even if you don't know what's there. It's a sort of like a, a readiness to, to, um, to trust and to see where your foot lands in the dark. You're not sure what it's going to land on but you just, okay, I'll take a step and see what happens. 
so that the faith is not based on filling up the unknown with a with a belief. Yeah, but there's always going to be a sort of differences of character, mm-hmm. so that um, people have less like personalities vary between people. So some people are more inclined towards you know intellectual analysis. Other people are more inclined towards devotion. Mm-hmm. You know, some people like the library. Some people like the flower shed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> some people like both, you know, or neither, you know, and that uh, the. So that there, there is, um, is a, a balancing of the faculties, but also it's recognizing your own disposition. So if you think, well, I don't want to be a faith type, I want to be a wisdom type. It's like saying, well, yeah, but, um, yeah that, you can recognize that you'd like that, but is that really necessary? Or uh, does it, do you have to be fixed on that? And so that it is, uh, you're recognizing your own disposition and your own strengths and using that as a pathway um, <clears throat> but uh, you know along the way you're also developing those other qualities like it's in, it's very similar to like you know, concentration and insight you can't really develop concentration without applying a certain degree of insight you can't really develop insight without having without having a certain degree of concentration sada and panya they they work in the same way you can't really you can't really develop wisdom without a certain degree of confidence and, a, and, and faith. You know, you might not be a devotional type. You might be sort of, wait a minute, you know, you're inclined heavily towards skepticism and say, well, prove it. <laughs> you know, Show me your reasoning. <laughs> and that, uh, and uh, whereas somebody might, you know, someone else might have much more of a, a trusting nature, like, oh, wow, that's great. You don't want me to explain it? No, that's fine. I trust you. <laughs> oh, Okay. And so they they both have their benefits and and, and uh, downside, but you you have to kind of, in a way you you need to get get to know your own nature. One of the reasons why um, I think Ajahn Chah was such a a, uh, a kind of effective teacher for Westerners was because he he used a lot more of the Panyavimuti, the kind of um, the wisdom approach, and and using um, reflective thought. Um, and so people could relate to his approach to, to Dhamma practice a lot more. Westerners could because of sort of overdeveloped thinking faculty. Um, where some other forest monasteries, they would, their emphasis would be like samadhi, 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 and like you know, all thinking is illegal. You sort of, you've got to, uh, and so that. I mean, I'm I'm exaggerating it a bit, but not a lot. And so that, um, where so you get Westerners who sort of coming out of uh, of 15, 20 years of education and reading far too many books and th- taking exams and getting degrees and whatnot, and then trying to just stop the whole thinking process. Like, you know, it's, like it's just not going to work. So Lumpur Chah's approach of using the wisdom and, and the kind of analytical exploration and kind of examining emotions and feelings and loves and hates in a more reflective way that uh, for many Westerners, that's like, oh, okay. So I don't have to, to su- suppress all this mental, ac- you know, mental agility. I can actually put it to use, rather than just try and switch it off altogether. So that um, that uh, that approach, even though Ajahn Chah was extremely skilled in, in terms of samadhi, but also the way he would talk about using reflective wisdom to help support um, samadhi and other spiritual qualities was something that that uh, and that's that's why there's so many branches of his monasteries around the world because it's a, an approach that many many westerners could could relate to because it's it sort of uh, picks up on that 
um, Dhamma Anusari Kampanya Vimuti, sort of liberation through wisdom. Uh, and then what, what, what Longo Cha, he uses reflective thought also to go beyond reflective yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But but it's all, but the thing is that he's he's using it as a tool rather than saying don't think uh, you know any kind of vitaka any kind of thought has to be stopped because you know you need to be in fourth jhana before you can get anywhere and so he uh, he he didn't take that particular track so to continue. Mm-hmm. Should so do. From, <laughs> from practicing, then he gets to kind of uh, taking them to liberation. So it's not kind of a, can I say it's not really kind of devotional? Devotional is, is um, uh, there's no a bit of substance or understanding, is it? Well, they're, they're related. I'd say they're, they're, they're related. That it's a... Um, uh, that you know, in in order for devotional practice to be meaningful, liberating, it, the it's it's supporting that quality of faith, and it's like an expression of the faith and trust that is that is there. Um, it's kind of interesting that uh, um, I was having a conversation with with Joseph Goldstein a long time ago. Uh, uh, yeah, who is a, a meditation teacher at Insight Meditation Society, and and uh, and he was making this comment that see, Westerners they don't they 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 uh, they're not into devotional practice at all. They're not they're not really a kind of faith types, mm. yeah. And that they they're not they're not uh, devotional. And I said, well, um, you could say that, but also to sit in in total silence for ten days. And to endure, you know, aching knees and an aching back, uh, and a and a wandering mind for ten days, that takes a lot of faith. And uh, and so and and in a way, you're there, there's a devotion there. You're devoted to the practice. You might not be devoted in terms of having a shrine or lots of of candles, but there's a serious uh, quality of devotion that is is going on there, and the people trusting it. Yeah, if I sit on this ten-day retreat or this three-month-long retreat, that this is going to be transformative. So that that uh, the quality of devotion uh, or de- a devotional approach to practice is not just in the expression; it's also in a way it's it's its root, its its energy is in the quality of faith. I trust this is worthwhile. I trust this is really useful. I trust I'm going to put aside my work and my family and everything else to just do this. For this period of time, there's a there's a, a kind of a strength, a confidence that that's a worthwhile thing, and the readiness to put your attention onto that. So, um, so it, when you when I use the term like devotional practice, it's not just a matter of flowers and candles, but it's a it's like a uh, uh, anyway expressing that sense of of <coughs> following up that faith by action. So devotional is expression of faith. I would say so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the there's the what enlightenment factors they need this faith and then blah 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 some other stuff. So uh, that's why the faith can take to stream entry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Let's continue. The last example here is the Buddha giving his reasons why it is beneficial to let others know that there are monks, nuns, laymen and laywomen who have realized the fruits of practice. And this uh, uh, comes from Sutta number 68 in the Majjhima Nikaya. This is Bhikkhu uh, Nyanamoli and Bhikkhu Bodhi translating. What do you think, Anuruddha? What purpose does the Tathagata see that when a disciple has died, he declares his reappearance thus? So-and-so has reappeared in such-and-such a place. So-and-so has reappeared in such-and-such a place. So the Buddha is asking Anuruddha, one of of his uh, relatives and uh, enlightened disciples, this question. And also because Anuruddha was particularly skilled in seeing into different realms of existence. 
then Anuruddha says, Venerable Sir, our teachings are rooted in the Blessed One. Guided by the Blessed One, have the Blessed One as their resort. It would be good if the Blessed One would explain the meaning of these words. Having heard it from the Blessed One, the bhikkhus will remember it. Which is the Pali code for saying, I don't know. <laughs> Please, uh, I haven't got a clue. Please explain it. And so then the Buddha says, Anuruddha, it is not for the purpose of scheming to deceive people or for the purpose of flattering people, or for the purpose of gain, honor, or renown, or with the thought, let people know me to be thus, that when a, a disciple has died, the Tathagata declares his reappearance thus, so-and-so has reappeared in such and such a place, so-and-so has reappeared, reappeared in such and such a place. Rather, it's because there are faithful clansmen inspired and gladdened by what is lofty, who, when they hear that, direct their minds to such a state and that leads to their welfare and happiness for, for a long time. So, um, and when he uses this thing, scheming to deceive people for the purpose of flattering people. So, uh, in, uh, it's not uncommon to say, you know, to say, oh, so-and-so is enlightened, or so, you know, Ajahn Ahimsko, he passed away, well, you know, he's not going to be reborn, he's kind of totally, <laughs> he went, totally went beyond. Oh, just Ahimsko, my goodness, he wasn't even a senior Ajahn. Wow, <laughs> you guys must be really something special here. And then making uh, more kind of in, uh, more in the way of a reputation, uh, more in the way of offerings, more in the way of fame, and so on. So in the in the climate of the Buddha's time, just as uh, around the world, um, people love to have uh, sort of saints and heroes and spiritual achievers, and that and one of the most serious offences for a nun or a monk that it's a disrobing offence is if you falsely claim to be enlightened when you're not. Or you falsely claim to have spiritual attainments. If you tell, if I if I said, say, rookie, I'm an arahant, and I mean it, and I expect, I want her to understand, I'm no longer a monk. As soon as I've uttered the words and she's understood them, uh, and and she takes it to be a, uh, that I'm I'm telling the truth, that's it. My monk life is over, finished. So it's an extremely serious offence that so the Buddha made a like a very very strong prohibition, because he said that's the there are many kinds of thieves in the world. The worst kind of thief is the thief of faith. So that is kind of presenting themselves as, as having some kind of special spiritual qualities they don't possess. Because they're, they're, they're robbing the community, the, the public, of their faith. Because when they find out, you're not an arahant. You, you lied to me. How dare you? You know, I was, I was all devoted there for a while and now you've disappointed me. And then their faith is, is broken. Like if, he, if he was lying, what about the rest? No, I can't trust anybody. And then, so the faith is, is the Buddha says, the worst kind of thief. The, the, I think there's five kind of thieves in the world, and the worst kind is the, the thief that, that steals people's faith. So it's a very strong prohibition. So he's saying, but when, a, a, when the Buddha would say, um, yeah, Ajahn Ingsko has been reborn in the Sudavasa, he was a non-returner, a, uh, you don't mind me using it as a random example. <laughs> uh, and so he's, he's a, he was a, a non-returner. He's been re uh, reborn in the Sudavasa, in the pure abodes, where he will be enlightened, if he's not enlightened already, up in the pure abodes. Um, it's not for the sake of impressing people uh, or just kind of trying to gain offerings or renown, but rather, as he says, there are faithful people, inspired and gladdened by what is lofty, who when they hear that, direct their minds to such a state. So, they, oh, well, he could do that or that by practicing. This person has reached this very um, inspiring and beautiful uh, quality of realization. Oh, well, I, maybe I could do that too. So it's to encourage. Um, rather like the Buddha encouraged people to go and visit the, the what are called the four holy places where the Buddha was born, where he was enlightened, where he gave the first teaching and where he passed away that he said that those who go and, and visit those places then they um, make offerings there and um, pay their respects there. That'll be for their long-lasting welfare and happiness. Not because of, you know, if you praise me, uh, you'll score points. You know, because I'm so wonderful. You know, that, uh, you know if, you, if you visit these places where I was born and so on, then that's, that's good karma for you as a kind of ego inflation on the part of the Buddha. But rather that it's for encouraging wholesome qualities in the individual that, that he said these are the, um, they're called the Sangvega Niyasata, the places to, to arouse urgency, the four holy sites in, in India, to say, kind of encourage us to, to practice. The Buddha then refers to bhikkhus who are arahants, anagamis and sakadagamis. Then he says, 
Here a bhikkhu hears thus, the bhikkhu named so-and-so has died. The Blessed One has declared of him, with the destruction of three fetters, he's become a stream-enterer, no longer subject to perdition, bound for deliverance, headed for enlightenment. And he has either seen that Venerable once for himself, or heard it said of him, that Venerable One's virtue was thus, his state of concentration was thus, his wisdom was thus, his abiding in attainments was thus, his deliverance was thus. Recollecting his faith, virtue, learning, generosity and wisdom, he directs his mind to such a state. In this way too, a bhikkhu has a comfortable abiding. The Buddha then refers to bhikkhunis, laymen and lay women in a similar manner. So to Anuruddha. Uh, so, Anuruddha, it is not for the purpose of scheming to deceive people, or for the purpose of flattering people, or for the purpose of gain, honour or renown, or with the thought, let people know me to be thus. That when a disciple has died, the Tathagata declares his reappearance thus. So-and-so has reappeared in such and such a place. So-and-so has reappeared in, reappeared in such and such a place. Rather, it's because there are faithful clansmen, inspired and gladdened by what is lofty, who when they hear that, direct their minds to such a state, and that leads to their welfare and happiness for a long time. All these different aspects of the Sotapanna are worthy of much reflection. As human beings, we have the opportunity to experience a breakthrough from the stream of the world to the stream of truth. The discussion of this possibility is not just an idle philosophical pastime, but a practical guide as to how the heart can be set free. By being attentive to this initial stage of awakening, we can recognize more clearly what needs to be relinquished and what needs to be cultivated in the immediate present so that we can taste this freedom for ourselves. Most significantly, all these teachings show us that, by entering the noble path and embodying the various qualities of the stream-enterer, we could attain, quote, welfare and happiness for a long time, unquote, both for ourselves and for those around us. So that is the end of chapter 19, and there's a couple of passages I'd like to read from the very last chapter. So the chapter 20 of this book, the final chapter, is called Ah, What Bliss! The Blessings of Nibbana. So I said yesterday that we weren't going to get onto the bliss, but we'll have a little bit of bliss, a modicum of bliss, just to kind of see us out. And uh, so the first passage is, uh, that I'll read from this chapter is from Lumpur Cha. And this is a, a passage from uh, the book called Everything Arises, Everything Falls Away that was translated by Paul Breiter. When we realize things as this one Dhamma, all being of the same nature, we relax our grip, we put things down. We see they are empty. We don't have love or hate for them. We have peace. It is said, Nibbāna is the supreme happiness, Nibbāna is the supreme emptiness. Please listen to this carefully. Happiness in the world is not supreme ultimate happiness. What we conceive of as emptiness is not supreme emptiness. If it is supreme emptiness, there is an end of grasping and attachment. If it's supreme happiness, there is peace. But the peace we know is still not supreme. The, happy, the happiness we know is not supreme. If we reach Nibbāna, then emptiness is supreme, happiness is supreme. There is a transformation. The character of happiness is transformed into peace. There is happiness, but we don't give it any special meaning. There is suffering also. When these occur, we see them as equal. Their value is the same. That's a very potent uh, passage. Uh, and as he starts off, he says, uh, when we realize things as this one Dhamma, all being of the same nature, we relax our grip, we put things down. So when we see that everything, what, uh, what we like, what we dislike, uh, what's inside, outside, we see it all as aspects of, of Dhamma, aspects of nature, then we relax our grip. It's like the, we, everything is of the same substance. And so that rather than preferring this person to that person, or preferring this mood to that mood, uh, rather than, well, it's all just patterns of experience, it's all just aspects of nature. Why get excited about one and resentful of another? What's the, what's the point? Uh, it's all of the, the same fundamental nature, and there's a relaxation in the heart. We see they're empty. We don't have love or hate for them. We have peace. And uh, this uh, expression he uses at the end, 
that uh, liking and disliking, these are of equal value. Chop, my chop, tao tao gan. They're of equal nature. Liking and disliking, they're, they're of equal value. And then there's distinction between worldly happiness and the happiness of Nibbana is a frequent theme that also Ajahn Buddhadasa uh, emphasized that uh, regularly. So when we uh, get things that we like, uh, we have ex- pleasant experiences, we call that worldly happiness. But the happiness that come, uh, that is the happiness of Nibbana is the happiness of, of complete uh, non-grasping, that the, the mind is not uh, identifying with anything, any state internal or external. And speaking about worldly happiness, uh, the next passage comes from Sutta number 14 in the Majima. And um, the Buddha's been talking about uh, the uh, comparison of, of the, his experience of, of liberation and happiness and uh, 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 the experience of, of worldly happiness. And using the, exa- the example of King Bimbisara and his sort of very luxurious life as a, a monarch in a palace with all kinds of sensual pleasures. And the Buddha says, But friends, I can abide without moving my body or uttering a word, experiencing the peak of pleasure for one day and a night, for two, three, four, five, six days and nights, seven days and nights. What do you think, friends? That being so, who dwells in greater pleasure, King Senia Bimbisara of Magadha or I? That being so, the Venerable Gotama abides in greater pleasure than King Senia Bimbisara of Magadha. Last couple of passages I will read. Um, this is the where the, the uh, Ah What Bliss comes from, as the, the title of this chapter. <clears throat> During the Buddha's time, many of his fellow Sakyans left the home life and trained under him. One of these was Badia, who had been a clan ruler and had left his position take ordination in a group which numbered such well-known disciples as Ananda, Anuruddha, Devadatta, Pagu and Upali. During his first rains retreat, Bada realized liberation. His story is recounted in the Udana. So this is the inspired utterances of the Buddha and the translation is by John Ireland. Thus have I heard. At one time the Lord was staying at Anupya in the mango orchard. At that time the Venerable Badia Kali Goda's son, on going into the forest to the, uh, to the foot of a tree or to an empty place, constantly uttered, Ah, what bliss! Ah, what bliss! <coughs> a number of bhikkhus heard the, the Venerable Badia constantly uttering, Ah, what bliss! Ah, what bliss! And the thought came to them, No doubt, friend, this Venerable Badia, Kali Goda's son, is dissatisfied with leading the holy life, since formerly, when he was a householder, he enjoyed the bliss of royalty. And when recollecting that, on going to the forest, he utters, Ah, what bliss! Ah, what bliss! Like, remembering his kind of a luxurious life in the palace, his kind of oftenest fantasy world. <laughs> then a number of bhikkhus approached the Lord, to the, to the Buddha, prostrated themselves and sat down to one side, and reported this to the Lord. Then the Lord addressed a certain bhikkhu, Come bhikkhu, in my name tell the bhikkhu Badia. The teacher calls you, friend Badia. Very well, revered sir, the bhikkhu replied, and approaching the venerable Badia, Kali Goda's son, he said, The teacher calls you, friend, Badia. Very well, friend, the venerable Badia replied, and approaching the Lord, he prostrated himself and sat down to one side. The Lord then said to him, Is it true, Badia, that on going into the forest you utter, Ah, what bliss! Ah, what bliss! Yes, revered sir. But Badia, what do you see that prompts you to do so? Formerly, revered sir, when I was a householder and enjoyed the bliss of royalty, inside and outside my inner apartments, guards were appointed. So they had like armed guards, soldiers sort of guarding the the inner apartments. Inside and outside the city, guards were appointed. Inside and outside the district, guards were appointed. But, revered sir, although I was thus guarded and protected, I lived fearful, agitated, distrustful and afraid. But now, revered sir, on going alone into the forest, to the foot of a tree or to an empty place, I'm fearless, unagitated, confident and unafraid. I live unconcerned, unruffled, my needs satisfied, with a mind become like a deer's. 
Seeing this revered sir prompts me on going to the forest to utter constantly, Ah, what bliss! Ah, what bliss! <laughs> so it wasn't the fact he was missing all his kind of comfort and fancy cushions and uh, delicious food and his concubines in the palace, but it was just the, <sighs> I haven't got anything. No one wants to steal anything from me. No one wants to harm me. <sighs> what bliss! Then on realizing its significance, the Lord uttered on that occasion this inspired utterance, this Udana. In whom exist no inner stirrings, having passed beyond being this or that, free from fear, blissful and sorrowless, the devas are not capable of seeing him. And the final passages of this book, uh, it says, As can now be seen, Nibbana brings forth the fruit of bliss, in turn, the factors leading to Nibbana need to be nurtured along with the other seeds, terrain and the aspects of cultivation laid out in the Buddha's teaching. So this book, if you will remember, is laid out in these three sections, seeds, the terrain, and then uh, cultivation and fruition. Those are the three sections of this particular book. So the factors leading to Nibbana need to be nurtured along with the other seeds, terrain, and aspects of cultivation laid out in the Buddha's teaching. This fruition is the Buddha's sole goal in dedicating his efforts to teaching and training others throughout his long and illustrious life. All the teachings compiled in this collection are for aiding us in our search for well-being and peace. Having recognized that Nibbana is a possibility for ourselves, we're able to take the seeds, prepare the ground, and cultivate the fruit. The bliss of tasting and being nourished by this fruit is a principle of nature that we are all able to realize. A last example illustrating this principle of Nibbana as a state of intrinsic well-being also comes in the Udana. In the previous Sutta passage, Badiya describes the bliss of Nibbana as experienced in this life. In this passage, after the passing away of Dabba the Malian, the Buddha affirms that 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 Nibbanic bliss is not affected or altered by the death of the body. <clears throat> so Dabba, uh, Dabba Maliputta, Dabba the Malian, he was a very uh, um, unique character. He was one of the few people that uh, became an arahant at the age of seven, and his head was being shaved to become a novice, a seven-year-old novice. He realized enlightenment that on his head shaving. So he was a quick, quick learner. And... Um, he uh, uh, also, he was the guest monk, and he had a, a few psychic powers, one of which was he could make his finger glow in the dark. And so, uh, and then when people arrived at the monastery, when it was already after sunset, then he would take the visiting monks to their kuti with his glowing finger. <laughs> Before the people had torches and mag lights and whatnot, or headlamps. Yeah. So then what happened, of course, was that monks started arriving late deliberately so that then they get Dabba Maliputta to light, light his finger and show them through the forest. So the Buddha said, no, 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 no. Stop that. Because Dabba the Malian was having to kind of light his finger up all the time. So anyway, he, was a, he, he uh, appears in, in quite, a, quite a number of different places. And also, um, not only was he uh, an arahant at the age of seven, but he's also one of the few that uh, when he passed away, he passed away by entering the fire element. He spontaneously combusted. And not only did he spontaneously combust, but he did it in... Uh, he rose up into the air to the height of seven palm trees and then kind of... Um, uh, and um, uh, came down a bit lower again, went up again, up, uh, up and down as his mind was entering into different states of absorption. And then um, <coughs> when it, uh, his lifespan had reached its natural completion, then poof, he uh, combusted. A venerable Ananda did the same thing. Uh, Ananda, at the age of 120, Ananda did that. This is what it says in the scriptures. <laughs> you know, that in, the, in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about entering the rainbow body, that they have this, um, the body just transforming into light. And so that, uh, then there, there's, this is uh, documented uh, even in modern times. A few people have, have um, seen this happen. And others heard, a few years ago, there was a nun in Bodhgaya, a Tibetan nun. And they, they just found her, 
her shoes and her, her robes and th- there was this kind of bright flash of light and she, they found her robes and her shoes and she entered the rainbow body in the, in, the, in the area of the Bodhi tree uh, just off to the side near the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya hmm? she was a Tibetan Tibetan yeah, yeah. and uh, Ananda Venerable Ananda what was happening was that because he was he was 120 years old and he was highly revered member of the Sangha, he'd been the Buddha's attendant, so he was really famous, really greatly loved, and he was 120, so that everyone wanted him to die in their place, yeah, so they could have the funeral and they could have the... And so there was this argument going on between, I think it was the uh, the, the um, Sakyans and the Kolians, again, about, you know, where uh, they both wanted Ananda to be there and to pass away on, in Kolia or in, in, the, in the Sakyan kingdom. And so Ananda, um, he uh, apparently levitated up into the air, went into the middle of the Rohini River, which was the border between the two countries. <laughs> so Ananda, ever the conciliator, you know, okay, okay. Yeah, whichever, wherever this happens, wherever I pass away, someone's going to be upset. So let's just, so he floated into the air above the Rohini River and poof, combusted. So then both the Kolians and the Sakians like, damn. <laughs> we didn't get to cremate him you know. so that's the one way of settling an argument so anyway um, the, this is just after Daba has entered the fire element and has, um, has passed away and he'd been an arahant for a long long time and the Buddha makes his, uh, this comment so this is in uh, uh, chapter 8 sutta number 10 of the Udana just as the born, the born is like the destination or the, 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 the kind of arrival place. Just as the born is not known of the gradual fading glow given off by the furnace heated iron as it is struck with the smith's hammer, so there is no pointing to the born of those perfectly released who have crossed the flood of bondage to sense desires and attained unshakable bliss. So just as when, uh, when if you have red hot iron and the iron cools down, you can't say where does the glow go. You can't say where the glow goes to. You can't say what 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 what's the destination of the where's the glow gone. Like uh, it's similar to that when the Buddha asked with uh, um, Vajjagota, you know, when a fire goes out, where does the fire go? Like it doesn't go anywhere. So he says, just as the born, the destination is not known of the gradual fading glow given off by the furnace heated iron as it's struck with the smith's hammer. So when the red hot iron um, loses its glow, you can't say where the glow goes to. So there is no pointing to the born, the destination of those perfectly released who have crossed the flood of bondage to sense desires and attained unshakable bliss. So this is one of the very few places where the Buddha talks about the uh, post-mortem experience of a, an arahant. So, so he is, it's very, very rare that any kind of comment or any sort of um, uh, description of, of any kind about what is the, the nature of a, an arahant after the, the death of the body. But uh, in this particular instance, uh, at the end of, the, uh, of this uh, sutta, he, says, uh, he describes those who have crossed the flood of bondage to sense desires and attained unshakable bliss. So you get a little teaser. To, so that um, the Buddha was very resolute in not talking about beings or destinations or, or, or parinibbana or some kind of super heaven. But uh, you do get a, a little hint once in a while. And so that's the end of this book, almost the end of this book, because uh, Ajahn Pasana was absolutely insistent that on the very last page of the book here, we have a significant quotation from a, um, a yogi, but it's not a meditational yogi, but uh, a, um, a famous sporting coach, Yogi Berra, who was the, uh, the coach of the Green Bay Packers, the American football team and he was famous for making these slightly esoteric and uh, uh, but impressive utterances and this was, so Ajahn Pasana was insistent that we finish the book with a yogi, this Yogi Berra quote which is if you don't know where you're going you'll wind up somewhere else <laughs>
if you don't know where you're going, you'll wind up somewhere else. <laughs> and that's the end. On this one, yeah. this is um, that's also appears right at the very beginning. Yeah. This is from the Sutta Nipata, uh, verse one thousand and seventy-four. No, one thousand and ninety-four. Excuse me. So one thousand and ninety-four. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of nothingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana. So, that's the end of the island, Nittitang. Andamayang damakataya sadhukarang dadamase copies of this book if you wish to read it yourselves also available on ebook as ebook and, website, so. and as, as was mentioned earlier today these commentaries will be available yeah. shortly yeah, as I said earlier about 60% of them are already on the, the computer and the downloadable as mp3 so they reduce size and the other 40% <coughs> should be there within the next few weeks and I yeah, they eventually go on the website, don't they? Yeah, so eventually they'll be all posted on the website. So, thank you all for your good attention and good questions. Thank you.